Welcome to the official podcast of the University of California, Riverside School of Public Policy. I'm your host, Maddie Bunting. Through this podcast series, I will be talking with various voices in the public policy world about today's pressing societal issues. Join me to learn about potential solutions and interventions for today's biggest policy challenges, be they about health, the economy, the environment, or other societal problems impacting families in your community or the international community. Joining me today is Dean's Brand Ambassador Arlette Flores Aparicio and Dr. Erica Lloyd. Dr. Lloyd is a professor of psychology at the University of California, Riverside. The ultimate goal of her research program is to provide recommendations for culturally informed youth practice, prevention, and policy. She is also the director of the UCR Youth and Development Lab. I'm currently in Los Angeles, a suburb, Mm -hmm. um, born and raised, and I know going to Riverside really shined a light on so many societal issues and problems that I just wasn't exposed to. And I I think it's so important to learn about others and where they come from and what they've gone through. And and I think seeing the protests, um, you know, six weeks, almost two months ago, that police brutality, the justice system, COVID is showing, oh, the healthcare um, inequity, Mm -hmm. lack of access and education. It, It just seems like these minority communities have been hit over and over and over again. I just think it's so important to stay as aware as possible, um, mm-hmm. especially as a white woman in person. Like I think it's my my job to do that. And and, and I I've seen on social media recently, you know, there's been less talk of uh, Black Lives Matter or mm-hmm. uh, or um, issues within those communities and and trying to stay on top of it and not not let it die down and really try and say oh that one donation that's wonderful Mm -hmm. but you need you know like monthly donations annual donations don't forget about them um you know a month later so I just think it's Mm -hmm. so important to have these conversations and and I'd love um if you could just talk a, a a, a little bit of a synopsis of your exact research, because it seems like you do a lot, especially for the um, the youth community. Um, could you just give us a quick summary, if, if you can, of, of your research and what you do? Yeah, really um, broadly, what much of my career has focused on is understanding um, thriving or factors that prohibit thriving in black and brown youth, and mm-hmm. as an extension, their families and communities. And so some of that has been linked to risk factors around being a member of a a racial minority in the United States. So things like racial discrimination and how that affects mental health or cope, you know, poor coping, maladaptive coping. Mm. And some of that is also looked at more assets based things that promote thriving in these communities and these groups of youth that we can build into programs like mentoring programs or after school programs. So things like positive Mm. identity and self-esteem. So the New York Times recently published an article stating Latino and African-American residents of the United States have been three times as likely to become infected as their white neighbors, according to the new data. And Black and Latino people have been nearly twice as likely to die from the virus as white people. Mm -hmm. This is 
disturbing and uh, not okay. And I know your research works to understand how intersections of race, ethnicity, gender, and identity inform health and development for youth and young adults of color, um, such as Black, African-American, and Latinx, Hispanic communities. What are your thoughts when you hear statistics like these? Um, are you surprised or are there many studies that reveal such racial in um, inequities? Yeah, you know, when I, I saw the data coming out in the early days of the pandemic, especially around the health disparities, um, I was not surprised to see that it was disproportionately affecting black and brown communities. So we already know that um, data from the Centers for Disease Control show that there's significant disparities in health outcomes. For example, we know that Black Americans are more likely to have high blood pressure, diabetes, and stroke, and also die from those conditions um, at a younger age than their counterparts. So because these disparities already exist, they're really just heightened in the context of the pandemic where, um, you know, people are being exposed to the virus at a higher rate. So we already knew that these conditions existed around unemployment, poor economic conditions, generational poverty. Um, so I think I wasn't surprised when the data came out and I was really disheartened to kind of see the reality. Especially within my community, I was telling Maddie a story where I went to the, the doctors and my doctor in my clinic in my area was saying, you need to be really careful because our community, the Latinx community is being mm -hmm. hit the most. Mm -hmm. And I think a question that I have is, in your research, how does COVID-19 like kind of exacerbate the racial um, inequity already rooted in society? You know, what have you seen? I mean, we've seen some of your publications and even the titles within some mm -hmm. of the stuff that you have written is so inspiring. And I think COVID is kind of bringing a light to what you have researched. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. It's really laying bare the effects of the social inequities that we already knew existed. Um, mm -hmm. And so what we see... Um, the ways that black and brown communities are being disproportionately affected are, for example, youth may be living in homes where their parents are more likely to be essential workers and have to work outside of the home and not mm -hmm. have access to tech jobs where they can, you know, stay inside and continue to work. Um, and related to that, if they are in, um, or if they're not able to continue working, then you have that added um, stress of economic um, conditions on the family. So the family's not getting paid. And now we're kind of exacerbating food insecurities that we already knew existed for black and brown communities disproportionately. Um, sometimes what we see, and we saw this in really dense populated areas like Los Angeles and New York, mm -hmm. was that you see people kind of condensed in really tight spaces and not mm -hmm. able to you know, go live in another, um, to go to the rental house or to some <laughs> other space, you know, or to rent Airbnb, they really had to stay in the conditions that we already knew overcrowding existed. And so these were the types of conditions that exacerbate these health disparities. We also know that communities of color are disproportionately affected by underlying health conditions. And because those health conditions already exist, and we know that people who have underlying health conditions are more likely to die from COVID-19 because they already potentially have weakened immune systems, um, then we're seeing like that disproportionate um, impact as well. What I also know is that um, we are seeing, um, or I'm finding kind of in my own work is I'm finding more 
people from black and brown communities having personal contact or being personally affected by COVID-19. Mm -hmm. So knowing someone in their family who has it or who's died from it, um, they are really um, experiencing it at a higher rate personally than I think other, other folks around the country. I came from a predominantly Latinx community and I think those programs really helped me mm -hmm. like Avid, Upper Bound. Um, those are just same name a few. But I also wanted to kind of bring up on the education wide, especially with youth. I know it's um, August is around the corner. Yeah. So there's going to be that talk about um, reopening. And I wanted to bring up this topic actually of um, well, the difference between online learning for the different communities, mm -hmm. especially how you were saying most parents are essential workers. Um, have you thought about that or do you have a, a perspective on it? Yeah, you know, that's been on my radar because I, I think about, you know, um, equities and social equity and how that can promote thriving in youth particularly. So schooling has been on my radar quite a bit. Um, so what we saw um, in the early days of the, the shutdown in the country, like in March, a lot of schools went into crisis mode where they automatically shut down. And, and I, I was worried because and they transitioned to online. And so I was worried because there are a lot of students who don't have access to computers, they don't have access to internet, and there were companies that were offering um, like free Wi-Fi, free internet for those communities, but I knew that it wasn't gonna last. <laughs> and sometimes those are a bit of a trick because they'll provide free services for 30 days and then the family has to pay. So it's not really free. And so we already knew that there were educational inequities specifically mm -hmm. for communities of color. Um, particularly black and brown communities. We already knew that there were educational disparities in terms of um, yes. access to quality education. Um, we knew that schools were underfunded. And so we see a lot of schools that didn't have computers to give out to students that didn't have computers. Mm. And so as that continues to the fall, it's something that I've been thinking about a lot um, because we've moved from the crisis, you know, of the shutdown and doing whatever we can to keep kids kind of moving along to um, this is kind of our new normal, I put that in quotations, <laughs> you know, at least for the time being for health reasons. And yes. one thing that I've seen that's concerning is that it's going to push a wedge in terms of this, the, the haves and the have nots and who like whose parents have money to hire private tutors and can do small like hive homeschooling. And, right. you know, which young people don't have access to those resources and how many families have one computer for the entire family or how many students are trying to take their, you know, complete their coursework over their cell phones. So it's it's mm -hmm. not an easy um, answer. Um, it, there's no easy yeah. solution. But I think one thing that I am concerned about is that there were already educational inequities. And I think it's just going to push that even further, the divide even further. I know we just spoke, you know, how minority groups, including Black, African American, and Latinx Hispanic, has been disproportionately affected by COVID nineteen. And I kind of wanted to ask the question: In what ways do you believe COVID nineteen is affecting the psychological and mental health of minority communities? Yeah, I think that's a really complex question. I'm glad you asked that question because you know, it, mental health is always, I think, the thing that we think about last. <laughs> So we tend to focus a lot on our, maybe not, on our physical health in terms of like diet and exercise. And then the mental health part has unfortunately, for the most part, kind of been 
pushed into the margins. Mm -hmm. um, but we know it's really important in terms of also linking to physical health and other outcomes and human thriving, educational success. Um, so some things that I've been thinking about in terms of mental health, um, there are really kind of two things that um, are playing out right now. So I was gonna redirect our conversation back to um, this conversation around the tale of the two pandemics that I'm hearing kind of um, being discussed. So Maddie mm -hmm. asked about um, like the racial injustice and all the stuff that happened with pro um, protests mm -hmm. following George Floyd's murder. So the two pandemics that health researchers are talking about are COVID-19 and this you know global pandemic and racism as the second pandemic. And these are kind of interwoven together. Mm -hmm. And so I think there's multiple ways that it can affect young people's mental health. Um, one, just being that it's created this um, really complex, um, stressful context for young people, you know, not being able to engage in activities that normally they would do to, um, you know, support their mental health. Um, some of those activities have been taken away. So if they like to hang out with their friends, you know, um, hang out with their peers, engage in sports, some of those mechanisms or strategies that we tend to think support mental health or, you know, as you said, after school programs that are really positive for mental health haven't been available. And so in the context of all of this stress that's happening, those coping mechanisms haven't been available for young people. And the other part, I think, specifically for youth of color is the, the, the piece that's linked to more racial discrimination, more conversations about, you know, what they kind of knew, maybe they felt, but now it's being kind of laid bare for everyone to see that can create, you know, a sense of hopelessness that can create, you know, depression and anxiety, um, anxiety related to the pandemic, but also anxiety related to these, you know, systemic injustices. Mm -hmm. um, kind of a tangible way that mental health can be affected is we know that um, particularly Black and Latinx communities, um, for youth, they tend to access mental health services in the school. So they're more likely to get support for mental health in schools. And if schools are physically closed, it's unlikely that they're providing those types of supports for youth. So that's something that's been on my radar. Something that I've also been thinking about is we know that that was already on our radar before COVID was the increased risk for suicide among black teens, for example. So that was something that was flagged by the CDC. We know that suicide rates were increasing, particularly among young black men. And so that was something that was already happening that could be further exacerbated by what's happening in the country. So now you have to worry about a health pandemic layered on top of other types of injustices. COVID-19 has caused all of us to check our, our physical health and to be, I think, extra grateful for that and understand um, like health is wealth. And I know from, at mm -hmm. least for myself, that was a bit of an awakening. Oh, don't take it for granted. Look, what can happen. Um, I never would have thought I would live through a pandemic um, mm -hmm. or so many would die in a pandemic. I mean, it's, it's, it's out of body almost a little bit. Um, but with the mental health and, and just societal well-being also um, with racism and with what's really going on and addressing this is there's been a lot of talk of you were saying, quote unquote, the new normal. And I've seen so mm -hmm. much. Well, we don't want to go back to the way things were. We want to move forward. And right. um, I think those protests were such a wonderful way to 
to show the, this is our collective voice. We, we are done with what was and we are working towards what we want for the future. And, and I think of the 60s with Martin Luther King Jr. And I think of the 90s with Rodney King um, mm-hmm. and just living in L.A. And, and growing up hearing about that. And now George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and Armand Arbery and just name uh, a countless amount of names, which is so upsetting. But I'm, I'm curious, you know, as a public policy major, thinking about, okay, I hope this can happen. I hope these, our, our younger generations, myself included in that, can make a change and make a difference. Mm-hmm. That's what I want to work towards. With your research and, and what you teach and what you um, look into, what do you think moving forward should be put in place um, for for black and brown communities uh, to address inequality and inequity um, and, and how to level the playing field and say racism, it's, it's, it's in society and we want it gone. <laughs> and, mm-hmm. and that's a, a huge thing. Um, but I'm just curious what your thoughts are um, of, of how we can help the youth and young adults so when they grow up, it's a better future. Yeah, I'm really glad that this was, you know, that you asked this question, um, because I think what happened in the last few months around all of this, I think, you know, everyone was kind of forced to tune in because we're all like glued to our phones and social media, <laughs> like right. we nowhere to go. <laughs> so then it was like impossible to look away. So there was a lot of shock when people saw all of the things that were kind of happening. And I think we, a lot of us um, kind of woke up and realized like, this is not okay. You know, and some of us knew it wasn't okay, (laughs) Mm -hmm. but you know, the majority of us realized this is not okay. And so I think, and then there was a lot of um, like crisis, uh, what I call it crisis interventions where there were a lot of statements and, you know, things came out Mm -hmm. and, you know, they were condemning um, racism, anti-black bias. Mm -hmm. And so I think what we're seeing now, and as you said, it's true. Some of the conversation has kind of died down a bit. And I think, um, what should happen now is this is where the real work happens. So the performative work, like, which is important and we recognize that happened. It, you know, shed light on a lot of issues and um, a lot of things that we weren't thinking about, but now is where we really move towards like action. And as you said, policies, and I think about policies and practices. And when I think about policies and practices, I think about what we can do at multiple levels which I think can feel overwhelming, but the good news is it doesn't have to be me (laughs) enacting change at every single level. But, you know, there's levels on the individual level, like what can I as a parent do with my family to teach them about, you know, if I, can I create a space that supports multiculturalism and Mm anti-racism? So that's something that parents can do you know, thinking about Mm -hmm. your friend groups and thinking about the conversations that you have in your home, that can happen at a very individual family level. But as you said, some of these have to happen at the broader, you know, educational systems with the justice system. Um, Some folks are calling for, you know, complete dismantling. Some people are calling for defunding. I actually really appreciate the reallocation of resources to other supports that we know would be better, um, like mental health services and social workers. Um, So Mm -hmm. I think that's one, you know, policy change that can happen. One thing that I think has been really interesting is to see um, 
citizens creating their own systems of accountability in the absence of that. Mm -hmm. So one of the reasons why we know all of this is happening is because individual people have been filming what's happening, sharing it on social media. So that's (laughs) a system of accountability Mm -hmm. on the individual level that now we all see it. But that can happen at the systemic level. So I I heard um, just as a quick story I met a judge once at a conference and she shared that she collects her own data on demographics of young people that she sentences in order to understand how she's making decisions in terms of different cases. So we know that bias can affect, you know, young people. So boys in particular can be treated differently in the justice system. Girls of color are treated differently in the justice system. If youth look older than they are, But, you know, mentally, we know um, cognition doesn't always follow like physical development, but a young person may look older than they are. Are we making more adult rulings in that case? So I really appreciated her sharing that she had created her own system of keeping data in order to see her own bias. Like, am I making more harsh, you know, sentences for young people who have darker skin color, for example? Wow. So that's something that schools can do. That's something that our our government could do, you know, just create these um, systems of accountability. Definitely. Especially when it comes to data. I think that's what, I mean, as public policy majors, we take, you know, statistics classes and trying to see what that correlation is Mm -hmm. and how is that going to affect us in the future? I think that's one policy recommendation or even just to think about, or even just to, you know, in public comment at like a city council, like, are you, what are you telling the sheriff's department? Mm -hmm. Or do you have data collection of how many people that you're arresting or that are being pulled over? Yeah. Not even being booked. Mm -hmm. So like which communities are being targeted to your point, a a lot of people, a lot of people were aware. A lot of people were deciding to be ignorant Um, But when you see these videos or when you need cops to wear cameras um, Mm -hmm. to prove that you aren't, that you are treating people equally or you aren't. um, And it, it breaks my heart that we need that. But I, I I do like the sense of accountability um, because I think it will help get things done. Very true. And Dr. Lloyd, I have a a follow-up question. When it comes to that accountability, I know you're talking about videos and statistics and data, but kind of on that psychological level um, that you do your research on, when it comes to accountability, um, how can we do it more in the system Mm -hmm. of what we're talking about? I feel like systemic racism, everyone has been talking about it, but at the core of it, what's, you know, the recommendations, what are, what are we questioning? Is it, you know, through the schools, is it, you know, it starts at the teacher or does it start at the administration? <laughs> so yeah, that's a, I'm, I feel like it's such a tough question to be like, where do you kind of resolve systemic racism? Yeah. But yet it's so broad. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, uh, it's, <laughs> so it's interesting because I've had this, you know, conversation, I've had this debate with students, you know, where do we start? Mm-hmm. And, and sometimes we're kind of moved to feeling overwhelmed because unfortunately, you know, from kind of the inception of the United States, we can just start there. You know, it it was founded Mm -hmm. (laughs) with not ideal, you know, social conditions. Like, you know, it was the original sin. Yeah. 
Yeah. So it's, it's kind mm-hmm. of embedded in the, in, in the society, you know, and how the society kind of rolled out. And so every decision that we make is a decision that's, or a policy that we make or a law that's, that's targeted at kind of changing that, those, that culture is a step in kind of dismantling the systems that were put in place originally. So we're doing, we're undoing centuries of, <laughs> Centuries yes. of, of laws and practices and the ways that people were viewed, you know, if we even think about indigenous communities and how we interact with, you know, indigenous communities right. um, and how they're, you know, one thing that I, I've seen that's been really interesting, but it's something that I thought about since I was a child is the fact that they're often used as mascots, you know, mm-hmm. that decision, um, um, that cultural acceptance is kind of embedded in our system and in our society and the fact that you know people are okay with that with wearing you know insignia and making you know hand gestures and using really kind of denigrative racial epithets you know that I think um is is difficult but (laughs) so let me say there have been laws that were written that change you know behaviors because it's very difficult to change people's attitudes. Mm-hmm. Um, but if mm-hmm. we create or change laws, um, that can really change social behaviors. So Brown versus Board of Education was a really great example of that, you know, the yes. the mm-hmm. move to desegregate schools. So historically, there was this separate but equal, even though most of the country knew that it wasn't really equal. But saying, you know, that you have to desegregate the schools, that was a really historic case that changed the educational Mm -hmm. landscape. And unfortunately, there have been a number of rollbacks to Brown versus Board of Education, for example, Seattle schools versus um, parents involved, kind of not dismantled, but the decision that was made in that case kind of undermined the spirit of Brown versus Board of Education. So I think what we see are, you know, in the history of our country, it's like, couple steps forward, one step back. Step back. Mm-hmm. So it's like we're constantly kind of pushing the needle forward. And I I don't know if um, this is because we live in this like high tech, high speed society, but I think people expect us to be able to dismantle racism like overnight. And I think some of that's what we're, <laughs> yeah. what we're seeing. You. you know, like people are like, mm-hmm. okay, we shared, you know, on Twitter and you know, <laughs> you know, but it, racism still exists. <laughs> yeah. And mm-hmm. you know, of course Thank it does, you. because, you know, one thing that I've been inspired by, you know, the late John Lewis oh, talked yeah. about how this is a, a movement yeah. of a lifetime, you know, we have to kind of stay in it and continue with it. And there will be changes mm-hmm. that will happen after I'm gone that will benefit young people, and all the work that they're putting into it. So I might not benefit from, you know, my work and my effort, but young people that follow me will be inspired to continue to do the work and to do it in new and innovative ways. So for me, that's been really inspiring. This podcast is a production of the UC Riverside School of Public Policy. I'm Maddie Bunting. Till next time.